All right, Hamlet, Act Three. Uh, if you remember, we ended with a rousing soliloquy where Hamlet comes up with a plan to decide whether Claudius is really guilty or not. And the next scene and the next act begins, uh, the king is uh, checking in with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, and they haven't been able to figure out what's wrong with Hamlet. And then we set the next plot in motion. Uh, the king and Polonius are going to be behind the heiress while Ophelia talks to Hamlet. They're going to listen in and see if they can figure out what's going on. Now, the, the heiress or the curtain was probably the area at the back of the stage that was called the discovery space. Uh, there was a little curtained area they could go back behind there. Uh, I notice just before Hamlet comes in, uh, Polonius tells uh, Ophelia, line 45, read on this book, that show of such an exercise may color your loneliness. We, oft, we are oft to blame in this, "'Tis much proved that with devotion's visage and pious action "'we do sugar o'er the devil himself.'" Now notice that that's a, an interesting echo of what Hamlet said in his soliloquy at the end of Act Two: "'The devil hath power to assume a pleasing shape.'" And here, again, the image of the, the uh, a fair image that hides something. And then the king has an aside. Now remember, an aside is the king talking directly to the audience, his own thoughts. Nobody else on stage overhears this. He says, Oh, tis too true. How smart a lash that speech doth give my conscience. The harlot's cheek, beautied with plastering art, is not more ugly to the thing that helps it than is my deed to my most painted word. Oh, heavy burden. Now, this is really remarkable. Remember, Act 2 ended with this big plot that Hamlet had where he was going to find out whether Claudius was guilty or not. And here, 50 lines into the next scene, the king essentially confesses to the audience, which pulls the rug out from any suspense that we might have had about whether uh, Claudius was guilty or not. But then the then the king and Polonius hide behind the curtain, and Hamlet comes out and gives the most famous speech in Shakespeare. Now, this is usually called a soliloquy, but technically it's not a soliloquy because, of course, the king and uh, Polonius are behind the, the curtain, and Ophelia is, seems to be on stage as well. This is essentially a very, very long aside. It's it's you know typically Shakespearean that his most famous soliloquy isn't actually a soliloquy. This is also very different from the other soliloquies in that it's not prompted by a specific event that's happened. He's not he nowhere in this refers directly to things that are happening. Both of the previous soliloquies and the, the subsequent ones that we'll look at later are Hamlet reacting to something that has happened in the play. Uh, this one just comes out of uh, out of the blue. It's also very philosophical. Again, it's not rooted in, in the, the drama. And I want to work through the, the speech and think about what it's doing uh, line by line. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing, end them. So it starts off with two absolutely clear 
opposed alternatives, to be or not to be, being and non-being. You can't get more different than that. Then he goes on and defines them further. Uh, whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. So the first half of that must be describing to be, uh, that is, suffering the slings and arrows. Um, but even here, the, the syntax is kind of slippery. That line, whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer, does that phrase in the mind modify nobler? Or to suffer? Is it nobler in the mind to suffer? Or is it nobler to suffer in the mind? Um, it, again, it's it's subtle, but it's not quite clear. And then, so that's to be, and not to be is to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing in them. That uh, presumably is suicide, but it sounds like a very active thing. Not the, it's not like Taking arms against a sea of troubles sounds like taking action, and uh, the the first one sounds very passive. Um, then he expands further to die, to sleep no more, and by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. So now he's expanding on this idea. He's thinking about suicide, to die, to sleep. Now, if you end the line there, it sounds like sleep is a metaphor for death, a very common metaphor for death. But it's to die, to sleep no more. Oh, okay, well, yes, when you're dead, you don't sleep anymore. Again, like in the mind, the, the, the syntax is very slippery. And by a sleep, say, we end the, thousand heart, the, the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Now, Air is a, a word that activates ideas of something that happens after death. Your heirs are the people who inherit what happens to you after death. He's talking about death as an ending, but using language that suggests that things carry on after death. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished, to die, to sleep. Now he's repeating, right? to die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream. So now he's gotten caught. Now to, to sleep is apparently a metaphor for death. And of course, sleep is and isn't like death. Um, to sleep, perchance to dream. I there's the rub. That's the problem. For in this sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. So... If sleep is like, if death is like sleep, what will the dreams be like? Though again, the language he's using, shuffled off this mortal coil, that's the image of a snake shedding its skin, which is traditionally an image of rebirth, not of death, uh, which seems particularly inapt for the the comparison he's making. Um and there's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. Uh, again, the echo, there's the rub, there's the respect. Um, and makes calamity of so long life is, again, ambiguous. Does that mean makes it a calamity to live for a long time? Or does it mean makes calamity live for so long? 
Again, it could mean either or both of those things, but the slipperiness of this and ambiguity of this very, supposed to be very clear set of alternatives uh, it increases as the speech goes along. He goes on, For who would bear the whips and scorns of time? Now he gives this long list of things that are bad about being alive. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of despised love, the law's delay, the insolence of office, and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes, when he himself might his quietus make with a bare bodkin. Now, a bodkin is a, a knife, so a, a, a bare knife. Um, who would fardels bear, fardels, burdens, bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life, but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns, puzzles the will. Uh, so here he says, who would put up with all the horrible things you have to put up with in life, except that there may be something even worse after death? Notice, too, the very subtle wordplay here. Who would bear, bear bodkin, would fardels bear, from who's born, um, all, all of those. There's a lot of that, and I won't point all of it out, going on in the, the language of the, the speech. So even as it may be ambiguous and uh, uh, confusing, a lot of these little patterns in it make it feel like it all fits together, and just the sounds of it all fit together. And think about that phrase, uh, who the, the, he calls death the undiscovered country, from whose born no traveler returns. Now, wait a minute. How did this play start off? We saw a ghost coming back from the death. Now, most audiences never think about that as they're listening. You get caught up in this, and it passes right by you. But Shakespeare threw it in there. You should have noticed, but you don't. This puzzles the rule and makes it rather bear, as again, those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. Thus conscience doth make cowards of us all, and thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied o'er with the pale cast of thought, and enterprises of great pitch and moment with this regard their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. So it makes the, the, the end of this is it, it kind of trails off into, again, uh, inaction, uh, where it, it's not a kind of heroic decision about you know bearing the things of life. It's kind of a cowardly decision of being afraid of what might happen after death. And the, the speech that starts as if it, it's going to resolve this great issue. I mean, in I guess technically it does, but it still it ends up feeling less resolved, less certain, less sure than it did at the beginning. Uh, the the structure of it kind of melts away. Also, think about just the general context of this speech. What was Hamlet talking about the last time that we heard him? He confidently knew how he was going to expose Claudius, and he had an action and a plan, and the next time we hear him, he's talking about killing himself. Uh, that doesn't really follow that you know in a stand you know if this were being edited by you know standard dramatic uh, principles you would say oh no we've got to change that uh, you should flip those speeches you know now but of course Shakespeare is more canny about human nature and 
Hamlet's kind of manic, depressive uh, character comes out here. He's he's very depressed. Also, it's not at all clear. Uh, again, what exactly prompted this? Nothing. You can take this speech completely out of context from Hamlet. There's nothing in here that specifically relates to what he's going through in the play. And that's not true of any other speech that he gives in the play. Um, it's, it's, it's alien in some ways. Um, but once the speech is over, he confronts Ophelia. Um, and she's going to return the, the love gifts that he gave her. Um, and he asks her, this is line 103, Are you honest? My lord? Are you fair? What means your lordship? That if you be honest and fair, your beauty should admit no discourse, your honesty should admit no discourse to your beauty. Uh, now, what's he talking, he's, he's attacking her here. You know, you, you, you look pretty, but you're not honest, and you're not being honest, with you. that idea of honesty is coming up here. And he tells her, line 115, I did love you once. Indeed, my lord, you made me believe so. You should not have believed me, for virtue cannot so inoculate our old stock, but we shall relish of it. I loved you not. I was the more deceived. Get thee to a nunnery. Why wouldst thou be a breeder of sinners? So, look, he's saying, oh, I did love you. No, I didn't love you. Um, you, you should go away to a convent. Become a nun. You shouldn't be a breeder of sinners. Um, it says, go thy ways to a nunnery. And he asks very pointedly, line 130, where's your father? Now, a question about this scene, inevitably, is, does Hamlet know he's being overheard? And at what point does he know he's being overheard? It, does he know from the very beginning? Does he, as some productions have, he hears something behind the heiress and asks her, is this question asked publicly, or is he kind of taking her aside and kind of whispering, where's your father? Um, there are a lot of different ways to play this, because the scene, as it's written, and not surprisingly for the play Hamlet, is very ambiguous. Uh, but Ophelia answers, at home, my lord. And here he has been asking if she's honest. He is now exposed that she's not. She's lying. Her father is not at home. Um, and notice that Hamlet keeps saying goodbye and then continuing. He says, let, let him, the doors be shut upon him that he play the fool nowhere but in his own house. Farewell. And then comes back, if thou dost marry, I'll give thee this plague for thy dower. You know, get thee to a nunnery. Farewell. But then he continues, or if thou wilt needs marry, marry a fool uh, to a nunnery. Go, and quickly too. Farewell. And comes back, I have heard of your paintings well enough. So it's like he, he's, he, he's saying goodbye and then runs back, you know, oh, i got one more thing I've got to say. Um, it, it's very frantic. And look at what he says at the very end of this uh, this speech. Um, he says, go to, I'll know more. It's made me mad. I say we will have no more marriage. Those that are married already, all but one, shall live. The rest shall keep as they are. To a nunnery, go. Um, and then Ophelia has this soliloquy where she's just mourning the. Uh, she says, "What a noble mind is here, O throne." He's 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 crazy. Um, 
But Claudius was listening, and it's unlikely that Hamlet, Hamlet may suspect that Polonius is listening, but I don't think he realizes that the king is listening, or he wouldn't have said that about all that are married, all but one shall live. And Claudius heard it, and he knows exactly what it means. Look at what he says. Uh, Love, line 162, his affections do not that way tend, nor what he spake, though it lacked form a little, was not like madness. There's something in his soul on which his melancholy sits on brood, and I do doubt the hatch in the disclose will be some danger. So he's going to have him sent off to England. Claudius is no fool. He knows, he heard the implied threat there, that all but one who is married will live. Well, he sees that as a threat to himself. Uh, Polonius is still clinging to his original theory, as he tends to do. He says, I do believe the origin and commencement of his grief sprang from neglected love. Um, And he says, well, you know, this didn't work, so let's try it again. Uh, let, Let the queen... Uh, talk to him alone, and I'll hide behind and listen to that. And maybe that will uh, prove what I already want to be true to be true. And the king says, oh, whatever, it doesn't matter. You can do that, but I'm going to get rid of the guy. Now, interestingly, this encounter with Ophelia is one place in the play where I think Hamlet does seem genuinely unhinged. I mean, you can understand how he feels and what he's saying, but he really does seem to have lost control of himself at the very least. Um, he's certainly mad in the sense of angry, if not mad in the sense of crazy in this scene. But then the next time we see him, he's giving a very famous speech, one of many very famous speeches in this play, to the the actors on how to perform. And the the gist of his uh, um, uh, advice is that you you, you need to be moderate, don't overdo it. Again, this is incredibly ironic because we've just seen a, a, a big histrionic, scenery-chewing, uh, bold performance from the actor playing Hamlet. Then he comes in calmly and says, um, you don't want to you know, split the ears of the groundlings. You don't want to yell and carry on like that. Um, you, you don't want to, you know, you know, somebody who struts and bellows, which is exactly the kind of performance he was just giving. Uh, again, very ironic. Um, but we're setting up for the, the play within a play, uh, and Horatio is Hamlet's confidant here. He tells him what's going on, wants him to observe my uncle, uh, see if, if he reacts to the poisoning. Then the court comes in, and we get more little comic byplay with uh, Polonius. Look around line 100. Um, it says, Hamlet asks uh, Polonius, my lord, you played once in the university, you say? That did I, my lord, and was accounted a good actor. What did you enact? I did enact Julius Caesar. I was killed in the capital. Brutus killed me. It was a brute part of him to kill so capital a calf there. Um, Now, this is a little moment that you might wonder, what what is this doing? I mean, he's kind of making a wordplay joke with the Polonius, but Hamlet does that a lot. Well, the play that Shakespeare's company put on right before Hamlet was, wait for it, Julius Caesar. And I think it's very clear that the actor who played Julius Caesar is the same actor here who's playing Polonius. And the actor who played Brutus is now playing Hamlet. 
and Polonius, the act, Julius Caesar is, of course, killed by Brutus, stabbed by him, and Polonius is about to be stabbed by Hamlet in the next scene. It's this wonderful little metatheatrical nod. Uh, it's kind of both foreshadowing and, uh, you know, kind of an in-joke for regular audiences at the Globe Theater. Uh, they, would, they would get that little, little extra uh, meaning in that line. Um, now, he has a lot of this kind of body byplay with, uh, with Ophelia. Uh, he's, uh, again, he's kind of carrying on. In fact, he, he tells uh, uh, Horatio, I must be idle. But look, he says, uh, around, around line 120, um, What should a man do but be merry? For look you, how cheerful my mother looks, and my father died within two hours. Nay, it is twice two months, my lord. So long. Now, I think that that is kind of shocking. Now, if you remember in his first soliloquy, he said that his father had been dead a month. And now it's saying it's four months since his father died. So three months have passed. It doesn't feel like that in, in terms of the playtime. It's a shocking little moment there. Um, it adds to the sense of, of Hamlet's delay. Now, before the, the play within a play gets started... There's what's called a dumb show. It's a pantomime. Uh, they're acting out these things, and they act out the whole scene. You know, the king and queen are in love. Uh, he goes to sleep. The poisoner comes in, pours poison in his ear, and kills him. The queen comes in and mourns, but the poisoner woos her and becomes the, the, the new king, her husband. Um, now, this, is, again, is a very weird moment. The whole point of the play within the play was so that at the moment of the poisoning you could get Claudius's reaction. So why doesn't he react? There's no uh, idea that anybody reacts to anything uh, unusual here in this pantomime. Uh, you literally see the, poise, the pouring poison in the ear, uh, but it doesn't seem to have any effect. Uh, then we get the play itself. And the player king and the player queen uh, really dominate the, the play within a play. And though it's all here to set up the, uh, the, the moment of the murder and see Claudius's reaction to it, most of the play that we see is about the relationship between the player king and the player queen. And the idea is that the king is getting old. He says, I'll die. And the, the, the queen says, line 175, in second husband, let me be accursed. None wed the second, but who killed the first. Or line 180, a second time I kill my husband dead when second husband kisses me in bed. Notice that Shakespeare is writing this in, in rhymed couplets to kind of distinguish it from the, the blank verse of most of the rest of the play. Uh, but it seems this seems like a play that's much more aimed at Gertrude than at Claudius. Uh, and in fact, uh, it very famously, um, uh, uh, Gertrude says after this section of the play, the lady doth protest too much, methinks. Um, so she was kind of, of hit by that. Uh, now look at in the, the center of this, uh, line 184, the, the player king has a speech to the, the queen says, I do believe you think now what you speak, but what we do determined, oft we break. Purpose is but the slave to memory, a violent birth, but poor validity. 
or a few lines down, what to ourselves in passion we propose, the passion ending, doth the purpose lose. The violence of either grief or joy, their own enactures with themselves destroy. Where joy most revels, grief doth most lament. Grief joys, joy grieves on slender accident. So he's saying, yes, you know, people's passions, you know, they get all away, but that doesn't always work out the way you think it will. And he ends this speech, line 207, but orderly to end where I begun, our wills and fates do so contrary run that our devices still are overthrown. Our thoughts are ours, their ends none of our own. And I think this is a particularly relevant passage for the whole play, that our, our wills, what we want to do and our fates, what destiny has planned for us, are at cross-purposes. And our devices, our plans, our schemes are overthrown. We can think what we want, we can plan what we want, but we can't determine the end of it. Uh, and I think, as we'll see, that's a very relevant idea for the whole play, particularly at the ending of the play. We'll come back and think about that. Now, Hamlet, as somebody says, he's as good as a chorus. He kind of narrates what's going on here. And at line 240, the the, uh, the poisoner comes in and says, this is one Lucianus, nephew to the king. Um, and he says, uh, Lucianus has his speech and uh, again, pours the poison in the ear. Hamlet says, he poisons him in the garden for his estate. His name's Gonzago. The story is excellent and written in very choice Italian. You shall see anon how the murderer gets the love of Gonzago's wife. And this is what freaks Claudius out. The king rises. He kind of runs away. And Hamlet takes this as definitive proof that uh, that Claudius is really guilty. Now, of course, we know that Claudius is really guilty. We've heard his aside and his confession, uh, and we probably didn't really suspect it much anyway. But notice, what's the relationship in the play between the murderer and the king? The murderer is the king's nephew, not the king's brother. Who's the nephew to this king? Hamlet. So this can be, it's very possible that uh, Claudius is seeing this as a threat against him, not as reacting as a, with a guilty, stricken conscience. Of course, we know he has a guilty, stricken conscience. We've heard him talk about it. It's one of the many, many ways in which this play kind of, of, of obsessively undermines uh, any quest for certainty. Um, even this, which Hamlet takes as certain, turns out, if you think about it, not to be nearly as certain as you as he thought. Now, I want to look at a couple of minutes at the end of the scene. Uh, first of all, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern come in and tell Hamlet that he's supposed to go see his mother. Remember, this is the plot that Polonius had uh, cooked up. And Hamlet has a long conversation just with Guildenstern this time, and um, he offers him a a flute or a, a recorder, a kind of a, a flute, um, and asks him to play a song on it. And he says, well, I, I can't. I don't know how to play that at all. He says, and uh, Hamlet says, line 51, uh, it, it is as easy as lying. Govern these vintages with your fingers and thumb. 
Give it breath with your mouth, and it will discourse most eloquent music. Look you, these are the stops. But these cannot I command any utterance of harmony. I have not the skill. So Hamlet tells him, Why look you now, how unworthy a thing you make of me. You would play upon me. You would seem to know my stops. You would pluck out the heart of my mystery. You would sound me from my lowest note to the top of my compass. And there is much music, excellent voice, in this little organ, yet yet cannot you make it speak. Splud! Do you think I am easier to be played on than a pipe? Call me what instrument you will, though you can fret me. You cannot play upon me. So Hamlet is saying, look, you're trying to manipulate me. And he's doing this. Look, you, you, don't even, you can't even manipulate a, 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 a pipe, a, a musical instrument. I'm a lot harder. You can't figure me out. Stop trying. And the, the image of the, the, the pipe, the musical instrument, uh, is echoed earlier in the scene when Hamlet is talking to Horatio. If you look back at line 69... He's talking about how much he admires people like Horatio, who have a Stoic philosophy. He says, um, They are not a pipe for fortune's fingers to sound what stop she please. Give me that man that is not passion's slave, and I will wear him in my heart's core, I in my heart of heart, as I do thee. So the idea of fortune... Playing the uh, playing on someone, and here the idea of of uh, he tells Guildenstern, you can't play upon me, echoes back and forth. Then when Polonius comes in at the end of the scene to tell him to go, Hamlet says it kind of ignores what he asked him and says, line three seventy, do you see yonder cloud that's almost in shape of a camel? By the mass, and tis like a camel indeed. Methinks it's like a weasel. It is backed like a weasel, or like a whale, very like a whale. Now, what's going on here? First of all, if this was played in the Globe Theater, Hamlet, the actor playing Hamlet, could literally point up at a cloud and have somebody and have him look at that. Um, and he keeps saying, "Well, I think it looks like this," and Polonius says, "Oh, it does," and "Oh, it looks like that." He's making Polonius look foolish because he knows Polonius has to agree with him. Um, but it's also this uh, this idea, in fact, something that he said to uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern at one point, there's nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so, uh, that you can manipulate people. And notice that he is manipulating Polonius in exactly the way he said that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern could never manipulate him. Uh, then he gets uh, another little, a very short soliloquy uh, where he, he is... Uh, stealing himself to go to speak to his mother. But he says, I will speak daggers to her, but use none. Now again, the focus here is all on his mother. He's not, you know, the the, the speech that starts out, you know, it is now the very witching time of night when churchyard yawn and hell itself breathes out contagion to the world. Now could I drink hot blood and do such bitter business as the day would quake to look on. That sounds like somebody preparing to do revenge, but it's not soft now to my mother. Um, So he's not going to take revenge on Claudius. He's going to go talk to his mother, and he's reminding himself to to speak daggers to her, but use none. Uh, Then in the next scene, we're reminded of uh, uh, Claudius' plan to send Hamlet off to England, 
and then and and also Polonius's plan to hide behind the heiress. Then we get a long soliloquy from Claudius, and this serves as a more extended confession, and we see that Claudius really is guilt-ridden about what he's done. He says, line 36, Oh, my offense is rank. And of course, that means both it stinks and rank, as in his rank. He has achieved the rank of king where he didn't deserve it. It smells to heaven. It hath the primal eldest curse upon it, a brother's murder. So the primal eldest curse, the murder of Cain and Abel, you know, the story of Cain and Abel. Um, He says, pray can I not, though inclination be as sharp as will. My stronger guilt defeats my strong intent, and like a man to double business bound, I stand in pause, where first I shall begin and both neglect. So he's he's caught. He he wants to do this, but his his guilt defeats his intent, and he ends up doing nothing. Now notice that that is psychologically a very similar situation to where Hamlet seems to be. Where he in several of his soliloquies he'll talk about how he has you know the reason to uh, uh, kill Claudius, but he hasn't done it, that he's, you know, he's not able to do it. And here is Claudius in the same kind of situation. Um, You know, he says, well, what could I say? You know, forgive me my foul murder. He says, you know, I still have the, as he says, the uh, effects for which I did the murder, my crown, my own ambition, and my queen. Um, so he says he's he's going to uh, pray for forgiveness here. And then Hamlet comes in. So picture this. We've got Claudius praying, probably with his back to the audience. And Hamlet comes in and pulls out his sword. And, and he says, now I'll do it. And so he goes to heaven. So am I revenged? That would be scammed. A villain kills my father, and for that I, his sole son, do this same villain send to heaven? Well, this is higher in salary, not revenge. And he reminds us that the, the, the ghost was, uh, one of the things the ghost lamented is that he was killed without a chance for confession. And here is Claudius praying, getting forgiveness. If he dies now, his, uh, you know, he will be forgiven and go to heaven. And so Hamlet said, well, I can't do that. Now, uh, I think an, an audience feels very conflicted about this. This, With so many things in Hamlet, uh, part of us has wanted Hamlet to carry out the revenge from the moment the ghost told him about it. That's what the audience through revenge tragedy wants, is revenge. But on the other hand, how would we feel if he stabbed a man in the back while he was praying? Uh that would not be something that we want either. We are like Claudius and we are like Hamlet, a man to double business bound, who stand in pause where first I shall begin and both neglect. Two unacceptable alternatives and we can't choose between them. Um, but Hamlet decides he's going to wait until he can catch Claudius in uh, in sin and then kill him. And then very ironically, the king ends the scene. My words fly up, my thoughts remain below. Words without thoughts 
never to heaven go. So actually, uh, if Hamlet had killed him there, he wouldn't have gone to heaven. He didn't confess. He wasn't able to. He's still. He's not willing to accept the the punishment for his sins, and so he can't be forgiven for them. Um, again, it's a wonderfully ironic scene on almost every level. Now, in scene four, we get Hamlet's confrontation with Queen Gertrude. And it's interesting to think about this. It's almost kind of like a, a, a rhyming scene to the earlier scene with, uh, with Ophelia. And in both of them, we have him scolding the woman. Both of them, as we'll see, have a series of abortive exits where he says he's going to go and then comes back. Both of them have Polonius listening behind the, the curtains. Um, though, of course, there are a lot of differences between them as well. The most obvious being uh, Polonius' murder. Uh, Polonius yells out from behind the curtain when Gertrude calls for help uh, because Hamlet is kind of rough-handling her and says, sit down, I'm going to... Uh, you will not, may not go till I set up a glass where you may see the inmost part of you. I'm going to hold up a mirror. Now, the, the, he told the players that the purpose of playing was to hold up, as twere, the mirror unto nature. And here he's holding up the mirror to his mother. So... Hamlet stabs Polonius, and he asks, Is it the king? That's who he thought was listening. That's who he thought was there. Um, and so he thinks he's accomplished his revenge. Um, of course, he hasn't. And when he sees Polonius from behind the curtain, he says, Thou wretched, rash, intruding fool, farewell. I took thee for thy better. Uh, but then he goes immediately back to Gertrude. And Hamlet, you know, almost literally steps over the dead body of Polonius so he can go uh, lecture his mother. And look at the argument that he's making to her. This is around line 54. Look here upon this picture and on this, the counterfeit presentment of two brothers. So we've got the, this picture and... Um, uh, Often it may be Hamlet is has a picture of his father uh, on his neck, and Gertrude has a picture of of, of uh, Claudius around hers, and he holds them up and says, "Look at these two guys. How could you go from this guy to that guy? What's wrong with you?" Um, and the way he describes his father, uh, Hyperion's curls, the sun god, Hyperion's curls, the front of Jove himself, an eye like Mars to threaten and command. A station like the herald Mercury, new lighted on a heaven kissing hill, a combination in a form indeed where every god did seem to set his seal to give the world assurance of a man. So he, he gives this this larger than life divine figure of his father. This was your husband. Look you now on what follows. Here is your husband, like a mildewed ear blasting his wholesome brother. Have you eyes? Could you on this fair mountain leave to feed and batten on this moor? Ha! Huh, have you eyes? You cannot call it love, for at your age the heyday in the blood is tame. It's humble and waits upon the judgment. And what judgment would step from this to this? Now, interestingly, if he wanted to alienate Gertrude from Claudius, he could tell her he murdered your husband. He doesn't tell her that. He doesn't mention that. 
what he says is the guy you were married to was such a great guy and now you've married this guy what's wrong with you um that's again a bizarre thing and and it's a bizarre argument to make considering the argument that he could make though it does affect her and Gertrude says oh Hamlet speak no more line 89 thou turnst my eyes into the, my very soul and there I see such black and grained spots as will not leave their tinct as, as, as will leave there their tinct says nay but to live in the rank sweat of an inseamed bed stewed in corruptions honeying and making love over the nasty sty oh speak no more thy words like daggers enter in my ears remember that's what he said I will speak daggers to her though I will use none um now, this is exactly the opposite of what the ghost wanted him to do. Remember, after he said to avenge his death by killing Claudius, he says, uh, "Taint not thy mind, nor let the, taint not thy soul, nor let the mind contrive against thy mother aught. Leave her to heaven." And he's doing exactly the opposite of that. Uh, he is uh, berating her. Uh, for her sin in uh, remarrying, which is a very minor sin compared to Claudius's. Then, at this very moment, the ghost reappears, and Hamlet turns to speak to him. He says, Save me and hover o'er me with your wings, you heavenly guards. What would your gracious figure? And the queen says, Alas, he's mad. He's crazy. He's talking to someone... Gertrude can't see the ghost. Only Hamlet sees him. Now, this is very strange because we know that other people can see the ghost. The, they appear, he appeared to the guards, to Horatio. Uh, that's how they knew to go tell Hamlet about him. But here, the ghost isn't following the same rules. And Shakespeare typically gives us no explanation for why. Um, but it gives Gertrude a perfect reason to dismiss what Hamlet is uh, saying because he looks crazy. And look what the ghost says. Do not forget. This visitation is but to wet thine almost blunted purpose. But look, amazement on thy mother sits. Oh, step between her and her fighting soul. Conceit in weakest bodies, strongest works. Speak to her, Hamlet. Now, here again, notice the ghost gives kind of double advice. He's saying, you've, you've got to go and kill Claudius, and oh, be nice to your mother. Um, but look at the language he uses to tell Hamlet to go uh, uh, to fulfill his vow. This visitation is but to wet thy almost blunted purpose. Uh, that's a, a, an image of sharpening a knife, a blunted knife that needs to be on a whetstone so it gets sharp again. But we've just seen Hamlet stab somebody to death. It's ironic that at the very moment when Hamlet has taken action, admittedly not the right action, is the moment that the ghost comes in and tells him, you've got to start taking action. Um, Though, of course, he's not taking the right action here with Gertrude. Uh, And she does not respond to this. You know, this is the very coinage of thy brain. Uh, you're, You're making this up. The ghost goes away. She doesn't see it. And so Gertrude has every reason to think that Hamlet 
really is crazy. Now notice that the way this scene ends, like the confrontation with Ophelia, uh, was a series of Hamlet keeps coming back. You know, he says, starting around line 160, he says, Good night, but go not to my uncle's bed. And line 170, once more, good night. And when you are desirous to be blessed, um, it says, say so again, line 177, good night. I must be cruel only to be kind. Um, he says, what shall I do? And now the advice he's giving her is, don't sleep with Claudius anymore. You know that that's the main thing that he wants is that for them not to for them not to be married really, um, and he reminds her that he has to go to England. Says, "Oh, alack, I had forgot this place so much about memory and forgetting." Um, and Hamlet says he has he's going with his two schoolfellows, whom I will trust as I will adders fanged. They bear the mandate. They must sweep my way and marshal me to knavery. Let it work, for tis the sport to have the engineer hoist with his own petard, and I shall go hard, but I will delve one yard below their mines and blow them at the moon. So he's already figuring out how he's going to outsmart uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and the plans that uh, Claudius has against them, and hoist with their own petard as uh, another phrase that's come into the English language from, from Hamlet, uh, a uh, petard was a bomb. Uh, so what he's going to do is he's going he's going to blow up their own plans on them and destroy them with that. Uh, he says, "Oh, tis most sweet when in one line two crafts directly meet." Again, he's going to kill two birds with one stone. Um, he says, "This man shall set me packing." He refers to Polonius. I'll lug the guts into the neighbor room. Now, remember, on the Elizabethan stage, there's no curtain. They can't pull down the curtain and then let the actor who's playing dead walk off. They've got to get somebody to carry the dead body off. So he, uh, Hamlet drags Polonius's body off the stage. And again, think about this. I'm, I'm going to lug the guts into the neighbor room. There he is. He grabs uh, uh, Polonius by the ankles, pulling him off. He says, Mother, good night. Indeed, this counselor is now most still, most secret, and most grave, who was in life a foolish prating knave. Uh, again, a little pun on grave there. He says, Come, sir, to draw uh, toward an end with you. Good night, mother. And the incongruity of that, of Hamlet you know, dragging a corpse away and saying, Good night, mother, uh, ends this very bizarre scene. All right, let's end that there. For next time, as you read Act 4, a couple of things to look at. Uh, Hamlet uh, leaves, is sent off to England, but before he goes, he has another soliloquy. And again, look at the occasion for that and what's on his mind, uh, what his his plans are at this point. Then most of the rest of Act 4, Hamlet's gone. He leaves the stage. So we go mainly to the the uh, Polonius family story. And we see the reactions of both uh, Ophelia and Laertes to the death of Polonius. Uh, Ophelia goes mad and commits suicide. Laertes gets mad and seeks revenge. And I want you to think about Laertes and Ophelia as kind of parallel characters to Hamlet. 
uh, in what ways are they similar and different uh, and what and how do they illuminate aspects of Hamlet's character in in these scenes and think specifically about the way that Ophelia's madness is and isn't like the madness or maybe pretend madness of Hamlet and the way that Laertes approach to vengeance is different from Hamlet's. Uh, so we'll be looking at all of that and more next time. Uh, questions you can address to me at drmarkwomack at gmail.com. Thanks for your attention. I'll talk to you next time.